Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, this morning, we have the privilege of hearing again from God's Word, and we're, as Jody said, uh, continuing in our psalm series with Psalm 24. So would you read with me Psalm 24? A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. It's widely thought that this psalm was written by David on the occasion of the ark being brought into Jerusalem. And if you remember the account, David wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem earlier, and we had the account of uh, the ark being brought along and the cart kind of... Uh, the cart doesn't stumble. Did the oxen stumble? And the cart started to tip. And Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark on the wagon. And you weren't supposed to touch the ark. It was holy. And you could think of reasons to say that he received what he deserved. You know, he was trying to protect God from falling, or not God, but the ark, the holy ark of the covenant from falling to the ground. He wasn't supposed to touch it. So was it not his, his not having faith? I don't know. I don't know any of that. I just know one thing. He wasn't supposed to touch it. And God, in his holiness, took Uzzah's life. And you remember what David's response was. He, his response was, uh, he was angry and he was scared. And those two often come together, don't they? But David was angry and scared, and so he decided he didn't want to take the ark right now into Jerusalem. And so the ark went to rest at the home of Obed-Edom. And the Bible says that it rested there for three months. And during that time, that household was blessed. It was measurable somehow. They had the blessing of God. They flourished in that household. And David took notice of this, and he had gotten past his anger, but I don't think he had gotten past his fear. 
And so David decided that he would now go and bring the, ho- the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom and bring it into Jerusalem. And this is where we have the account of David uh, going in front of the Ark. And remember, I think they took, I don't know, seven, nine steps. Every time they took so many steps, they stopped and they sacrificed. This was a big procession. It was an extravagant procession. And at this time, David is dancing in front of the Ark. He's dancing, and he's wearing like uh, cotton, the stuff you wear under your, whatever they would wear under his outer robes. This is what he's got, stripped off to his, to his outer, his underclothes, you know. I don't know if it was what we can imagine, but somehow his skimpies and flimsies, David's down into them, Right? And so he's going to go along and sing and dance in front of God. And what we believe is true is that this is the psalm or one of the psalms that they sang as they progressed, processed up to Jerusalem as they went up. And it might have been done responsively, even as we did in the call to worship with part of this, where Jody had read part of it and we responded. That may have been how it was going as they went up into Jerusalem. But the psalm begins, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. God created the earth. Somehow, after its initial creation, the Spirit of God moved over the surface of the waters. And then a whole lot of other things happened, if you read on in Genesis, of Him separating Lower water from upper water, water from firmament, land from water. He brings the earth up, you know, and then he suppresses the water and holds it back this way and down. So there are huge reserves of water under the ground. Reserves of water that scientists are still finding and saying, wow, there's a whole lot of water under the ground, right? And it's fascinating. But God did all of this. He put this all together. And this is a confessional statement. It's a statement that we make when we stand and we confess. So what is a confession? Well, a confession is a formal public avowal, acknowledgement, affirmation of religious beliefs. This morning we recited the Apostles' Creed. It is us confessing specific things that we believe. It's important to us, and I'll get to that in a, in a minute, but it's very important for us to do this. We typically confess our faith during worship on Sunday mornings using one of two or three creeds. And there are other confessions as well. And I want to read about creation from one of those confessions. It's from the Belgic Confession. Article 12 of the Belgic Confession reads this way. We believe that the Father, when it seemed good to Him, created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing by the word. That is to say, 
by the Son. God has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their Creator. Even now, God also sustains and governs them all according to His eternal providence by His infinite power that they may serve humanity in order that humanity may serve God. Now, I read that little section from the Belgic Confession, and you realize there are lots of things in there that if we were to confess them in front of the right people would get us in trouble. If I were to say this thing to in front of people, if I were to say that thing in front of people. What about the last line? Did you catch the last line? He made everything to serve humanity in order that humanity may serve him. Can you imagine in the right circumstances, in the right places, making that confession, saying to, saying to somebody, you know, the whole, the whole world is about us people. It's about us men. That's what it's about. it's about. It's about man. The whole world is about man. It's all here to serve us. We're kind of the apex. We're the top, right? It's all here for us. And how that could get some people angry, you know, what would they say? Well, what about the dolphins? Most of the things they would talk about, okay, most of them would be in the ocean. What about the orangutans? What about that one gorilla that seems to stand straight up sometimes that they have in the news all the time? What about him? I don't know. He's got a back problem. But I know he was made for us. You understand? God made all of creation for us. And he made us for himself. And God has demands on us because of this. He demands our sincere demonstration, demonstrated confession that he be known and embrace as owning it all. He owns all of it. He made it all. He owns it all. He owns us. God is not part of his creation. He didn't create himself. Now, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? God didn't create himself. But isn't that really what we're constantly told? We're constantly told that everything was made out of what? Was made by what? Accident? Usually the word is chance, right? But chance has, no, chance has no ability to cause anything. Do you understand? Think about it just for a second. Chance has no ability to cause anything. Chance, you can understand chance to be um, the way to measure uh, probability. But you can never understand chance to have caused something. Nothing, in other words, if there is chance, chance is something. 
it has to have, it has to be something. But it can't cause anything if it's not anything. It isn't anything. Chance is nothing. God created the heavens and the earth because he is someone. He didn't create himself because that doesn't make any sense. What we say today is all of creation created itself. That's what the world says constantly to us. And so why do we have to say in the beginning, why does we have to to confess that God created everything? Why do we have to keep saying this over and over again? Well, it's necessary because we're constantly being bombarded with temptations to say that it happened some other way. And it doesn't matter if the other way we're tempted to understand it happened is completely illogical. And it is. But we're constantly, constantly being pressured to do this. And so we have to keep confessing. This is one of the reasons we make these confessions again and again to remind ourselves because we're constantly, constantly being told this is the way it is. No, this is the way it is. No, this is the way it is. And we come back here and we stand together and we say, no, no. God made the heavens and the earth. God established it. It belongs to him. All of it does. But he isn't his creation. God is outside of his creation. Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. When Stephen was being about to be stoned and he was preaching to those who would kill him, he says in Acts 7, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? But we must confess it over and over again. Because it's constantly, this truth is constantly being challenged by lies. And these are exactly the lies that we go for. Whenever we go for one of these lies, we are guilty of idolatry. Do you understand? This is the path to idolatry. We exchange the God to whom all creation belongs for countless representations in his creation. And this is idolatry. Romans 1.25 says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And so, we'll worship just about anything that God has made. Think about the things that have been worshipped. We've worshipped the sun, we've worshipped the moon, we've worshipped the earth, we've worshipped the stars. We've worshiped mountains. 
We've worshiped bodies of water. We've worshiped waterfalls. We've worshiped what? We've worshiped dolphins. We've worshiped ourselves. We form representative images. Our own artistry becomes our God. And through this, we seek to transcend, to find meaning. And so, it's just like when Paul went to Athens and he's talk, he goes into the city and he sees all of these idols, you know, it was like everywhere. And he sees one and it says, to an unknown God. This is an altar written to, built for the unknown God, just in case. And Paul seizes on that opportunity to, to speak to the Athenians and he says, that's the God I came to tell you about. All of these other gods, they're not gods at all. You've been worshiping them in ignorance. One God is all there is, and he made everything. And everything else is an idol. Everything else here that you worship is an idol. And in the past, he's overlooked such foolishness, but now he has said it's time for everybody to repent. And as a sign to you that it's time for everybody to repent, he has sent his son to the earth and he has died and God by his power has raised him from the dead. And that's what I came to tell you about. And this is what Paul brought to the Athenians. God declaring that all people everywhere should repent. Repent of thinking that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Thinking that God could be contained or manipulated by his creatures. Are we different today than the Athenians because we have uh, supersonic planes and microwaves? No, we're no different. Our idols take a little different form. Our idols look a little different. We have different images and different things that we worship, but we're really no different from them at that time. When Annie and I and, and Kimmy went to Niagara Falls a few weeks ago, and uh, you know, since the, the selfie sticks were in bloom at Niagara Falls, and since the um, selfie stick phenomenon, I mean, I didn't even know what a selfie stick was. It seems like nine months ago, I'd never heard of it. I know they've been around longer than that, but I'm in a lag, okay? And so we're at Niagara Falls, and since this stuff has happened, we hadn't been to a real international kind of place where people would be, you know, people don't go in Bloomington really that much and take the selfie pose in front of the courthouse or something. But at Niagara Falls, people are all going around with their selfie sticks, right? And now, if you don't know this, they have a, they have a uh, selfie drone that will follow you around. I'm not kidding, okay? And so everything really about selfie sticks and selfie drones, it's all about social media. It's all about social media, and social media is just our temple du jour. If you can, if you can think of, of Paul walking into the Areopagus and seeing all of those idols in the Areopagus, just imagine that you're walking into Facebook, 
and you're seeing all of the idolatry of our hearts, right? There it is. It's just the temple du jour, okay? And so, and if you don't think it's, it's becoming more aggressively so, listen to what Mark Zuckerberg said this week. Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg wants his social network to fill the role that churches and social clubs once did in communities. He said that membership in all kinds of groups has declined in the last several decades. That's a lot of people who now need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else, he said, promoting Facebook's large community support groups as a substitute. In fact, bringing people closer together is so important that, quote, we're going to change Facebook's whole mission to take this on. Are you excited? He is, (laughs) he's unveiling the heart of his idolatry. You don't need church. Pew Research did a a check on millennials and they said about 36% of millennials are unaffiliated with religion. Now that's what they said. 36% of millennials are unaffiliated with religion. Now think about it. Are 36% of millennials unaffiliated with religion? It's kind of a trick question. No. No. I know where they all go to church. At Zuckerbergia Church, right? This is where they go to church. Places like this where they have the free worship of their idolatry. They're not free from religion, but they are alienated from the one God who made heaven and earth, to whom they belong. The earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. And so it's not just there, it's in all of our favorite paths to transcendence. And so we have the, the recent giant brains in Bloomington, it's been what, three years now since they moved the brains on somewhere else so that we could, and I don't know if they advertise them as the Bloomington brains when they go into other cities. But you know, we had these, these fiberglass brains about the size of this piano sitting around the city at various places to demonstrate to us, I tell you, it was all just very self-congratulatory and self-affirming. Because as we saw them, we thought to ourselves, yeah, that's right. It's amazing that my brain fits in my head. (laughs) Because this is really the size of my brain, this piano. And so we, we march around town and we see them and every time we see them we say, yeah, Bloomington, yeah. We're smart, very smart. 
And it's bogus, absolutely bogus. False, idolatry. We worship food. Uh, Annie and I were watching a video of something where they were going to a place where they had this $5,000 hamburger. And you think about, you could watch uh, videos like stupid things like that 24 hours a day. And it's like a $5,000 hamburger. Why? How good can a hamburger taste? I like hamburger, but how good can a hamburger really taste? Not $5,000 good, right? We worship sex. Our nation is obsessed with sex. We have temples for sex everywhere. And some of them are just virtual, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. We worship sports. We worship comfort. We worship entertainment. We have idols everywhere, and all of it, none of it is God. It may be our God, small g, but none of it is God. And we feed on it. And this is what Isaiah says. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. And he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot and seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Right? We want our idols to hold up. We want our idols to be strong. You know, we don't want to know about the bad stuff. We want our idols to be strong. So the man goes out and he gets a piece of, in our area, it would be black locust, it's a type of tree, and he takes it in. And he takes it in his house and he cuts it in two pieces and he takes one piece of black locust and he gives it to a skillful man and that skillful man starts chiseling and and moving and everything and he says, now be careful because when it's done, I want to set it up on the table. I don't want this, this is my God you're making. You got to be careful. I don't want it to to totter like this. I I don't want the people to come in and feel uncomfortable because my God's tottering all the time. And then he takes the other half of the piece of black locust and he goes over here and he chops it all up and he cooks his bread over it. That's what he says in Isaiah. He cooks his bread. And the man doesn't understand the inconsistency. He's blind. He doesn't understand. He says, no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and have also baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before the block of wood. And he kneels before his idol. And you say, well, that's not us. And I say, you, you've got to be kidding. 
we're kneeling before blocks of wood constantly. Isaiah says, he feeds on ashes. That's how he describes the man. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Okay. Do I make you take out your smartphone? Is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you want me to find you a lie on here real quick? With us all the time, isn't it? Or on our portable laptop. We carry around our God's small g so that we have the convenience to worship wherever we want now. We don't need to have to go somewhere. It's always with us. Wherever we are, there's there's our little temple with us, isn't it? The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word incarnate founded it. He is the only one deserving of our worship. Now everything else is idols. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Nothing. Zero. And then we come to verses 3 to 6. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and is not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Well, then you read that. And I have to tell you that sometimes when I read this psalm, I just think, why does that part have to be in there? I was liking the first part. God made it all. It belongs to him. I'm liking the bottom part. Lift up your heads, your heads O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, the King of glory may come in. I like that because that's triumphant, right? That's strong. God made the earth. Yes, I'm ready. And then you get in that middle part and you realize, ugh. Because all these realities of my life and even the testimony of God's word itself says, I got a problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. This is from Romans 3. No one who understands, no one who seeks for good. I'm sorry, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. 
None who does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave, their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, verse 19, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Okay, everything that he just said, all have turned aside, no one does good, their throats an open grave, their mouth full of cursing. But understand that he's bringing it all together under one heading, and that heading is those who would live by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, this is what you'd have to be. You'd have to be free from all of those sins. And guess what? We're not. If we were gonna have righteousness through the law, we would have to be free of all of those sins. And we're not free of all of those sins. We can't have righteousness from the law. And so no flesh will be justified in his sight because of the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So how are we supposed to ascend the holy hill that we sang about in Psalm 15 in the service earlier? Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And we find ourselves in this place where God knows we have to be, where we realize that we're dead. The law kills us. We realize that in order to approach God, in order to go in the procession with the ark into Jerusalem, in order to abide in his tent and to dwell in his holy hill, we have to have righteousness. We have to have been justified. Or the words we say aren't true or we don't, we don't qualify. And so what do we do? We're at the very place we need to be where the law has said to us disqualified. The law says disqualified. It has a purpose. It's supposed to say that to us because it isn't until we realize we're disqualified that we will say, what will I do? Where will I go? How can I ascend the hill? How can I come to God? And then we have hope (laughs) because God is kind and he's given us Jesus Christ. And he says, look, now you're, you're getting the picture. Now look, look at what I've done for you. You can't have righteousness through the law, but you can have righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have two ways that we go about singing Psalm 15 when we sing it. We're either singing it like, um, who may abide in your tent when we dwell on your holy hill? And then we, we're, we're sitting in our seats out there and we're saying, yeah, that's me. I can do it. I've got it in me. Because I'm good. Right? Or we say, uh, you know, I am a sinner, but our church, we talk about being sinners and we're better than other churches, so we're good. And our hearts just twist us and twist us and twist us and twist us and twist us. You see what I'm saying? And we try to stand in that righteousness that's by works, that's by the law. And we can't. It's a lie. It's a lie. We're feeding on ashes. But if we turn to Jesus Christ and we say, I got nothing. I have absolutely nothing. Oh God, would you have mercy on me and save me. Forgive me of my sins, make me righteous, justify me, justify me by faith.
I trust in your son. Then God says, yes, you are now, you are now in Christ. You are now in Christ. And I want to talk about that for a minute. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But Paul says in Philippians 3, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might obtain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. The New Testament in the New American Standard Version refers to being in Christ 88 times. And then, as in the verse I just read, many more times it talks about being in Him, meaning being in Christ. And you realize how vital this is for our understanding and our identity, that we are not in the law, and we're not in the world, we are in Christ. And it's only in Christ that we have faith to be justified, to walk, to look to, to stand and approach God, to have the joy of confessing with hearts that have been washed and pure only in Christ. That's the only place that we can do this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And David, the king, who marched in front of the ark into Jerusalem, knew this. Because David's justification was not by works, it was by faith. He was justified by faith in a Christ he knew was coming. And he believed God that that Christ would come. And so often God used him in the Psalms even to prophesy and give words to the Christ that would come, that would be fulfilled in Christ's own words. In Psalm 40, which we're going to get to next summer, unless the guys step it up, right? In Psalm 40, David is, is speaking the words of God, and he says, Behold, then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And this is Jesus. He's the one who's written of. David had faith. Was he a sinner? Yes. But he wasn't justified by the works of the law. He ascended that hill by faith with the righteousness that is by faith, and so do we. We ascend the holy hill in Christ, contained in Christ. Being in Christ by faith, we join all of God's people through the millennia to command the doors and the gates to open. 
But there is a little difference because we know something that, and we've seen something and understand something clearly that David wasn't privileged to see and understand. Because we see and understand the, the coming of Jesus and the incarnation. And so it even helps us as we interpret our understanding of justification. Galatians 4.22 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, this is the law, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So David, when he walked into Jerusalem in front of the ark, he walked up the mountain and into the city of Jerusalem. And that was right, that was appropriate, right? And that's where God's people worshiped. But now something new has happened. And that God has, God has revealed his great big plan. He's made known to us something that he had planned throughout all of, the, all of the ages. And that is that he has a people and he has a Jerusalem that's, that the Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem is only a, a type of, it's only a picture of, it's, but, it's, but it's even bad now in the allegory. Because now you have a Jerusalem that's from above. And so with this revelation, with the, with the coming of Jesus Christ, we have a Jerusalem that we ascend to that is the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that John describes in the book of Revelation that's coming down out of heaven. It is all of the people of God that he's constructed together. It is the heavenly Jerusalem where he dwells by his spirit, where he's present, where there's no need of the sun. And so when we call out Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. We're not speaking to the gates of the city of Jerusalem in, in Israel, are we? Well, that would be good. But really, we understand that the King comes into the holy city, and the holy city is the new Jerusalem. And that we declare that He's coming. Open the gates! Open the doors that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of Glory. Now, isn't it something as we read through this psalm how Jesus seems to be the key to everything? From the beginning, as his creative power speaks his creation into existence, to the middle where he takes his righteousness and gives it to his people, and they are justified by faith, to the end where 
he brings, a, brings together a new Jerusalem and then he is called to be received by her and ushered in to her, to her presence. And this morning we get to remember him again because we get to come and, and remember his sacrifice that made this possible for us. We get to remember his body and blood. Let's pray together.